All right, 7.15, time to start. Welcome, everybody. Good soil evangelism. And week number four on how to share the gospel. And I will review a little bit, starting on page 12. And if you don't have a workbook and you are brave enough to admit it, after me embarrassing Marcy last week, Marcy came in with her book this week. Look at her, see? Everybody good? Anybody need one? Really? I won't embarrass you. All right. So just before page 12 is an unnumbered page with this chart on it. And this chart is really the genius of the good soil uh, approach. You see up at the top there, it says the good soil E and D scale. That's evangelism and discipleship scale. And the bottom half is the evangelism portion, that gray-blue portion. Then the green portion is discipleship. Now, we're just doing the bottom. This whole class is just about the bottom portion. And you may remember that the way that bottom portion goes from minus 12 to, to minus 1, the idea is that someone needs to move from where we all come into the world. We all came into the world with a God consciousness we're made in the image of God, and so people come into the world aware that there is a God and that they are creatures of this, this God, the Bible teaches. Everybody has that awareness, but they suppress that awareness by, by nature. Sin causes people to, to do that. But everybody starts with that, that first one down at the bottom. Born with a, I don't like the God vacuum piece, but I already said that a few times, but you get the idea. Uh, and then you, you move up the, the scale, and we want to try to help people move up the scale as the evangelists. So we want to determine where they, where they are along this scale, and depending where they are, we are either, you see in the middle portion, the white portion there, we're tilling or we're planting and, and reaping. And there are different things that we're doing at each of those, those three stages as the person moves upward. You can see that most of, the, no, most of the time, normal circumstances, this takes time. That most often you don't get the opportunity to do all of this in one meeting with someone. You can. You can uh, give an abridged version of the, the gospel to someone if you just have uh, a chance, uh, not a chance encounter, but a providentially appointed encounter with, uh, with someone. Uh, you'll give an abbreviated version uh, and then pray that the Lord will use that in that person's life uh, later on and perhaps through someone else. But most of the time, it does take time for you to help somebody move up the, up the scale. Now, we have, another, uh, we have another chart that I've shown you that shows this from the minus 12 to minus 1 going vertically, going up. But then you have the minus 12 to minus 1 going across horizontally, remember? And as you go up, you're trying to help them uh, achieve understanding. That's the, the idea. But as you go across the, the top, you're trying to see receptivity develop so that the person understands and they're receptive to what it is they are they're understanding. If someone is deficient in understanding, they need more truth. If someone's deficient in receptivity, they need more love. And we, as the evangelists, are God's instruments to do both of those, to give God's truth, but also model God's, God's love to the person as well. And when those happen, you get to the middle there, uh, the middle uh, going across horizontally where it says, repents and trusts Jesus. So you till, you plant, uh, you reap. That's our role. Those are the responses on the part of the person that we're trying to see come to the Lord. And then there's what God is doing through all of that. You see that on the, the right side in the arrow that's going upward. God is the one who provides the truth in the form of general, bottom there, general and special revelation. General revelation is creation, the conscience of each person that comes into the world, gives them an awareness of right and wrong, and therefore a moral universe uh, and, a, and a moral creator who gave it. That's general revelation. Special revelation is the Bible. God is the one who gives that. And then with us presenting that in, in pieces over time 
to the individual. God develops conviction, and then, Lord willing, they come to a point in the middle there of regeneration. God gives, imparts spiritual life to the person, and they respond by repenting and trusting. And then God continues to work in their life in, in sanctification. Okay, so that's, that's the idea. That's what the evangelism and discipleship scale is. And everything else that we're doing here is based upon, upon that. Now, that raises some questions, though, because you've got the person starts at whatever number they're at when you encounter them. And there's some subjectivity here. It's not an exact science to try to figure out where somebody is. And the authors of this material... Uh, actually say that even these 12 steps up the ladder are not the only things that you could put there. Of course, you could add others in between, but it gives you a general idea of how people move from where they are to where they need, where they need to go. So that means we want to try to figure out where they are, uh, figure out what they understand, what they don't understand, and then try to fill in, in the gaps there. Page 12 that we saw last week is about helping unbelievers uh, understand and helping unbelievers understand. Yeah, and we filled those in. I don't have that slide for you, so if you didn't get that last week, this is being, this is being recorded audio and video. Is that true? All right, so that you can actually see the, uh, the video uh, last week and you'll be able to see the slide and where all that stuff on page 12 gets filled in. But the idea there is, you see they're numbered one through six in the middle of the page. And the guy that's got the Bible open, the evangelist, you know, with number one, he's trying to give the meaning of something like John 3.16 uh, to, to someone. And then he develops ways to say it. That's what number two is, you know, just a, a way to say it, to encode it, in fact, was what they used uh, last week. And then having decided this is how I'm going to put this, this is how I'm going to say this, then you transmit it, number three. So you're trying to give the meaning. Uh, you encode it in language that the person can understand, transmit it to them. But then down at the bottom, you see it's going from you to them. And number four is worldview noise, that there's a static that keeps the, the message from coming through absolutely clearly. And on the other end, they're trying to decode what you've said, number five there. They're trying to decode it, but you know the decoding is uh, easier or more difficult depending on how much worldview noise there is in between. And so the response is you see the thought bubble from the guy on the right. You know, number six, he either he gets it the true meaning, number six, or it's just a bunch of garbage to, to him or something in between, right? So that worldview noise piece is, is very important. So if you will take a look then at um, page 13. Page 13. Top of page 13 says... As we try to help people understand, we've got to deal with this issue of worldview noise. And we saw last week on, on page 13, we want, to, we want to get an idea of which gospel concepts they understand, which ones they don't. And this material gives you eight gospel concepts. You see them in the bottom half of page 13. God, man, sin, death, Christ, cross, faith, and, and life. And up the top half of that page, there are eight passages that go with each of those. We matched those last week. So part of your evaluation of the person that you're speaking with and you're hoping to use a relationship with to bring to see brought to Christ is what do they understand about these concepts? And maybe they understand three out of the eight. Maybe they understand none of them. But that's going to help you determine what I emphasize where we, where we uh, begin and where we want to go. Page 14, this idea of worldview noise, is this just something that some slick marketer came up with to sell religious stuff to us with religious art in it, uh, by the way? And, uh, or 
is it, uh, is it actually a biblical concept? And we've got three passages from the book of Acts that show us that indeed, as we think about worldview noise, you do, in fact, see that in Scripture. We saw last week Acts chapter 2 on page 15. And from Acts chapter 2, you've got the whole passage there from verses 5 through 41. But you have in bold the portion that is most relevant for what we're trying to see here. And that is, in that passage, Peter has stood up to speak, to communicate truth, but he is dealing with, he, he knows how much worldview noise he has, or how little worldview noise he has. And that's determined by the culture, that's determined by the audience, and knowing the audience then tells him, Peter, what it is he needs to emphasize. So you see in verse 5 there in bold, in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men. So who's he talking to? He's talking to Jewish people. And he's talking to them in the seat of Jewish religion, uh, the temple, the location of the temple in Jerusalem, the capital of God's chosen nation, Israel. So that gives you an idea of who these people are and some of what it is they understand. And because they have a high level of understanding about several of those eight concepts, about God, about humanity, uh, about sin, but the one they don't have understanding about is, is Christ. Who's the Messiah? Is this really the Messiah? And so that's where, he, that's where he goes. Look at in bold. Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God. And then he talks about Christ, Jesus Christ, and his claims to uh, being the promised one in the first part of the Bible that they were well, that they were well aware of. So that's Peter on the day of Pentecost. But then if you go to page 16, you have another example. Actually, on page 16, you finish off that example. We, we looked at this uh, last week. And we saw that they understood the first four, but they didn't understand starting with the fifth there. And we determined, I think we all agreed, that if you put them on the scale, the vertical scale somewhere, that they're somewhere between minus five and and, and minus seven, and all three of those, minus five, six, and seven, are all part of the section on planting. So a lot of tilling has already been done before Peter ever gets there. The tilling has been done because they have the Old Testament. The tilling has been done because they were raised with, with a lot of this. But he can now uh, start the, the planting, uh, begin with the planting process, and then hope to move to, to reaping. Okay? Everybody good? Now page 17, you have another example from Acts chapter 14. And Paul and Barnabas, and they go to, on their first missionary journey, so Paul makes three of these missionary journeys. This is the first of them. He takes Barnabas with him on that one. And that's recorded in Acts chapters 13 and 14. So here we are in Acts chapter 14. And on this journey, going from city to city, giving the gospel, planting churches, they go to a couple of cities. You see there in verse 6 at the top, Lystra and, and Derby. So knowing something about Lystra and Derby would help to then tailor the message to fill in the gaps for what these people need to, need to know. Now, you find here that, that Paul and Barnabas' ministry there was pretty short, and there was an upheaval that occurred when these two guys come to town and they come preaching. And here's what it says. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, and if you read the verses before, he had, uh, he had healed a man. And when they saw that, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. So here's Paul and Barnabas, and they're going, 
all right, what do these guys understand? They don't understand much. They've got it, they've got it wrong. And we need, to kind of, we need to fill in the gaps as quickly as we can. And so down beginning in verse 14, you see in bold there, they start talking to them about the living God who made heaven and earth. We're not gods. Zeus is not God. Hermes is not God. There's the true and living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are, are in them. So they tailor their, their message and where it begins based upon what they perceive from the audience. Now you have over on the right, down toward the bottom, as we saw last week, that there's some background to that, and you can read that again if you, or for the first time if you weren't here last week, for why it was that the people believed this. But there's some history to that. There's a myth that existed at the time that caused them to, to think that. So page 18, now with Paul and the Zeus cultists. Just like we did with the Jews at Pentecost, you know, what about these people? Where do you think the people in this Lystran crowd were on the good soil uh, E and D scale? Well, look at, Paul, look at where Paul starts. Who does he start with? He starts with God. So pretty much he's saying, we've got to start at the beginning with these people. Uh, so everybody has minus 12. So... You know, you can give that much credit to whoever it is you're talking to. <laughs> They're at step two. <laughs> Everybody's at least at step two because everybody was born with this God vacuum, this awareness of, of God. But, and these guys are aware of, of higher powers. You know, they may sense a personal spiritual emptiness, but at the very, they, they are no higher than minus eight. And Paul's got to tell them about the truth about who, who God is. And so of the eight gospel concepts, again, again, see them across the bottom there, God, man, sin, death. Which of these did the Lystrans already understand fairly well from a biblical worldview? Uh, pretty much none, that would be, <laughs> right? They understand God, they understand man, they so he has to start at the... He's got to start at the beginning uh, with them. So he starts with, number three there, he starts with God. What did he say to challenge and correct their faulty worldview concepts? Well, he's using God as singular. You know, they've got God's plural. So there's one true and living God. There aren't a bunch of gods. That's how he, that's how he starts to challenge their, their worldview. Now look down at the very bottom of that page, page 18. This may have been Paul's first encounter with a totally pagan Greek audience. So what missiological, that is missions-related principles, do we, do we see in this, in this story? You know, so if you're Paul and you encounter somebody like that, that is just really completely foreign, all these Christian concepts are foreign to them, then... You know what? Uh, what kinds of things might we might we learn out of out of that? Well, here are some of the here are some of the things that um, might have affected Paul here. One, he was uh, he may have been caught off guard by their reaction because he hasn't he hasn't encountered this yet. He's been with these Jewish audiences. He would remember as we're going through the Book of Acts on Sunday morning. We pause that now, but we've been doing it for a lot of months. And when he would go into a city, he would most often go into a Jewish synagogue. And that's where he would start because those people already had some, some background. But now he's just got totally these people, these pagan people that don't know anything uh, about it. He may not have known anything about that, that little box on the bottom right on the previous page that talks about that myth that had developed before. And so when they come running and they're telling, uh, saying that Barnabas is uh, Zeus and Paul is, is Hermes, Where's, where's that coming from? Well, there's some background to that, but he might, not have, he might not have known it at the time. He may not have fully understood the Lycaonian language, but he nevertheless, with all of that, he adjusted on the fly. You know, 
What do these people understand? Not much. Let's start at the be. Let's start at the beginning. All right. And then you have a third example on page 19. And this is Paul in Athens, Greece, philosophical capital of the ancient world. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, names like that. The Athenians are fascinated with philosophy. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says in Acts chapter 17 about them, he says the Athenians love nothing better than to spend their time learning some new thing. That's what he says. So these are the, the people that he's dealing with. That's the, the setting. It's in Athens, Greece, philosophy. And you see in bold there, in particular, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So what about the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers? Um, you guys have in your workbook, toward the back, there's a bunch of extra stuff. Not the notes that we're going through now, but almost half of your notebook is like just extra supplemental stuff. And there's a section just called supplements. And the page numbers start with an S. So if you look down, if you just sort of flip through, you'll get to the S section. At the top it says supplements. At the bottom page numbers, it's, it'll say S-1, S-2, S-2. So you got all these supplements. Well, this is five. If you look at S supplement 5, and it tells you something about Epicure Epicureanism and Stoicism. It tells you who was the founder of that particular philosophy, Epicurus. In the case of Stoicism, Zeno. It tells you when. Several hundred years before Paul comes to Athens. You know, Paul's coming to Athens in the first century, first century A.D. And you see the years there of 341 to 270 B.C., 334 to 5. So for several centuries, these philosophies have existed. And here's some of the things that, that they believed. So I just wanted to point that out to you in your workbook, that you have some tools, some helps. Uh, in, the, in the back of the book uh, in the form of those supplements, and that is one of them. All right, now, this being the case, with him encountering these people, and he wants to, like we all want to do, we want to eliminate as much of the worldview noise as we can. So we want to evaluate where they are. In particular, what kind of gospel concepts do they understand, those eight things? What do these guys understand? Well, let's go back to page 19, and we'll see what Paul thinks they understood. And the answer is, again, nothing. <laughs> because if you look down at the bottom of the page, on page 19, when he starts to speak, he says, I proclaim to you God, who made the world and everything in it. Since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, He does not dwell in temples made with with hands. All right, he, you see how he's challenging their worldview? They've got all of these idols all over. He says, as I observed your objects of worship, I see idols all over the place. You're very religious. The King James says, very superstitious. But God made all of this stuff. So all of the stuff that you're worshiping was actually made by God. And he's not worshipped top of the right-hand side there, verse 25, with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Let me just stop there. He made from one blood every nation of men. That's the biblical story, is it not? It starts with two people. Every, every one of us is related. We all are related. Humanity has never been able to get that. And we have suffered from it for millennia, millennia. How crazy is sin blinding people's eyes? But we are, we are all related. The Bible teaches, Paul says that here. 
And he says in verse 26, and has God has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, when they would live and where they would live. <laughs> Every time I talk about God being sovereign, uh, you know, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Let me just tell you my, my woes here, okay? Every time I talk about the sovereignty of God, I get some anonymous person write to me. Yeah. I've, been, I've had some anonymous clown writing to me for months. Now, I say clown because the stuff they say is uh, not right. And you're a coward. I'm not saying you, but I mean, just identify yourself for heaven's sake. You got something to say? Say it. Or, yeah, thanks. You can come to the altar if we had one. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, uh, I bring it up because when you talk about God being in control, it really strikes a nerve with people, man. And I would just suggest to you, I would just suggest to you, get comfortable with the fact that God's in control. Get comfortable with it and love the fact that God's in control. And don't see it as your job to challenge the God who is in control. I don't see it that way. I think probably the reason the person <laughs> doesn't identify themselves and just come forward in a straightforward way is because they know that my reaction will be very straightforward. We'll just say it that way. Because I don't like to see the character of God challenged. But nevertheless... Am I right? Is, is that what Paul's saying here? That God's in control, not you, Athenian philosophers? So God did all this, verse 27, they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each of us, for in Him we live, move, and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, and notice this is in quotation marks, we are His offspring. So Paul knows enough about them to know, know that. He quotes one of their own Athenian poets to say, you guys know more than you're putting into practice. Remember when I said earlier that minus 12, everybody comes in, everybody gets credit for minus 12, okay? Because we come into the world born with this God consciousness. Romans chapter 1 teaches that. Acts chapter 17 is teaching that as well. He's saying to the Athenians, look, you know God. You know you came from God, as a matter of fact. But you got all this other stuff that obscures the truth about that. And so he then goes on to uh, give them the gospel and, and talk, about, talk about Christ being the center of that. Okay, so do you guys, um, are you convinced, I hope, of this idea of worldview noise? And that you have to, it's a biblical idea and that we then need to evaluate where we are. So where we, are we in Southeast Michigan, in Trenton, Michigan? Where we, are we at this place and time? And what kind of worldview noise do we have that we need to wisely seek to overcome so that people achieve understanding? Doesn't mean that they achieve salvation, because I can't make that happen. You can't make that happen, right? Remember on the chart, on the right, God has to do the convicting. God has to give the spiritual life. But God uses us in the process of giving the understanding that's necessary for that. So if we're going to do that, we've got to cut through the worldview noise. Page 21. So if you look at page 21, it's now talking about, at the very top, how dense is the worldview noise in your host culture? So now we're bringing all of this to us where we are, the host culture worldview. How would you describe the dominant religious worldview where we are? you got a bunch of them there. And it could, be more than, it could be more than one, but it's trying to really get us to focus on, you know, the dominant one. So if you just had to pick just one, what would you, give me a few, what would you guys say? You would say New Age. Okay, all right. Postmodern. Okay. Okay, well, 
So how about this? Let's add a box called a mess. Okay. <laughs> We're just we have we are <laughs> other, yeah. Okay, alien. Yikes. Oh, yeah, really. I mean, because, you know, you could make a case for all of it. You could make a case for all those, couldn't you? Really. So postmodern, yeah. So John gave, yeah, thanks, John, for giving the postmodern. Yeah, but the, the idea of postmodernism is, I mean, you hear it in popular phrases, you know, like, you do you. You know, you make your own truth idea. It's not objective truth, subjective truth. How do you get meaning out of anything? You get meaning out of your own, out of your own experience. You know, so a guy like me talking about getting meaning out of looking at words on a page and putting those words in a context so that you get an objective meaning from that's not the way truth happens in a postmodern, a postmodern approach. Um, truth happens as an encounter between you and whatever's happening uh, around you. So it's it's personalized. It's not outside of you. It's completely antithetical to Christianity. But yeah, that's a that is a big, big one. What other aspects of that would you? Good. Okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh huh. Okay, the Disney princess. I'm gonna be off. I've already made everybody mad, right? I've made the artist mad. So the the who? The clown. <laughs> the anonymous clown. You're talking about? Okay. <laughs> so. Yeah, because the clown may be watching, for all I know. You know? It's kind of weird. I never know where the clown is. I know. And I'm, and I'm afraid of clowns. No, no, I'm not afraid of clowns. <laughs> so last night, now see, you get me going on it. Who said Disney? Who did? Yeah, da Amy. So it's val it was Valentine's Day yesterday. And so I try to think of something for us to do. And... So we'll go to dinner. We'll go to a nice restaurant. And so I made reservations at this nice restaurant in Detroit. And then after, these guys do a shuttle to different places, venues in Detroit, one of which is the DSO. So we went to the DSO. Last night, Kim and I went to DSO. And for Valentine's, the DSO was doing uh, the Princess Bride. That's the DSO. Now... I'd never seen the Princess Bride. I know. I know. That's why inconceivable. And so, see, and you guys apparently all know the Princess Bride. I've never seen. So the running joke is, and this is not much of a joke, it's really true. If it wasn't on C SPAN, I didn't see it, okay? If the, if the Princess Bride was not on C SPAN, I didn't see it. I, I have seen like two handfuls of movies in my life. I don't care about movies. And so the Princess Bride, I just figure it's Valentine's. It's going to be, you know, sweet music that came alive. <laughs> but what they do is they, got, they show the whole movie. And they show the whole movie, and the, the symphony played the score to the whole movie. So I have now seen the Princess Bride, and I understand the inconceivable uh, piece and, and all of that. And uh, so uh, where was I going with that? That... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So there was all kinds of that kind of stuff, you know? And you do, you hear it. Once you're, once you're attuned to it, you hear, you hear it all over the place. So it was still fun. We had, a lot of, we had a lot of fun with it. And I learned that. Do you know the original score to that movie? Who played the music for it? Uh, dire Straits? Money for nothing? And your checks for free? Yeah. The Walk of Life, The Sultans of Swing. I could go on about the uh, about Dire Straits. Just two guys, they said, playing playing guitar. But here we had the whole seventy person orchestra playing playing last night. All right, back to page twenty one. <laughs> so, you in our area could encounter a bunch of different people, right? It's not monolithic, that's for sure. 
And so just like you see in these biblical examples, you're going to want to have some idea of where they are, where they are coming from. So I have a handout for all of you that goes through a bunch of these. And so let me go and fetch that. I left at my office. Will you guys uh, give me the three minutes to go to my office, come back, be here when I get back, talk amongst yourselves, okay? Pass these out just on this side, okay? Thank you. Thank you, friend. All right. All right. So you see on the front cover there that this thing covers down toward the bottom, you know, a number of isms, belief systems that, that people have that you, that you might encounter. And so you've got a page on each of those, and each page is laid out the, the same way. Look at page three, and this is the one for an agnostic. If you encounter someone, gnosis is a Greek word for knowledge. So an agnostic, you put the uh, A in front and it negates it, so it means I don't know. So an agnostic is saying, I don't know, I don't know if there's a God. I'm not saying there's not a God, I don't. I'm not saying there is, I don't know. And you, and you have a lot of people who fall in that category. So you look there at the top, what they believe, and notice it's got the eight gospel concepts there. God, man, sin, death, Christ, cross, faith, life. And then conversation hints that could break through levels as you carefully peel in agnostics. I'll talk about the worldview onion here in a minute. And then the other helpful thing that they do is they give you some resources down at the very bottom. So for every one of these isms, they give you that, and then they say, here's a website or here's a book that might, that might help you with that. Now, I'm not going to go through any of these other than what I just did. Uh, they're there for you to, to be used, and then there are the resources. So you encounter somebody at work, and they're in the agnostic category, or they're in the atheist category, Roman Catholic, what, whatever, Muslim You've got a resource there to help you with it. Let's just pick one back to page 21 in your, in your workbook. So that's just yours to keep and, and use as a resource. So back to page 21, let's just pick one. Let's pick, say, Roman Catholicism. And let's answer the questions down at the bottom based upon Roman Catholicism. Knowing what you know about the people who live in our area, where would a typical adult be on the E&D scale? And let's say they're a Roman Catholic then. So if you go all the way up to minus seven, they realize there's only one God. They've been exposed to other Christian concepts. If there's somebody who is a practicing Catholic, so they go to church every week or, or most weeks, then they have some interest in Jesus and the gospel, let's, let's say. Uh, understand some gospel concepts, right? The, the, the cross, Christ died on, on the cross and, and raised. Now, so you're, really, you're way up in the reaping. But then there's the senses, personal, spiritual conviction. Now, with a Roman Catholic friend, what would you say about their view of themselves vis-a-vis -vis God. They feel guilty, they feel convicted. How would you, what's that? 
okay, uncertain if I'm going to heaven. Because you can't. You won't know until you get there. Until Peter, <laughs> Peter has the keys. Peter gets to, you know. And how long are you going to be in purgatory? Because, so this is, where, this is where it really starts to break down, is in that top portion where you're really now, and it, it can get even tougher, in fact, it is tougher, than with someone who doesn't know anything. Because what they know is wrong, for the most part. And in some cases, you'll be using, you'll be using the same vocabulary with a different dictionary. And that's the hardest thing, when you're using the same words, but you define them differently. So grace, for example. For us, what is, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor, right? But in the Roman Catholic system, you can, you can actually earn grace. Which for us, we go, that's a contradiction in terms. Earned grace. It's unmerited. It's unearned. And if you look at it, how it's used biblically, that's the right definition. It's unmerited. It's unearned. But your Roman Catholic friend doesn't go to the Bible, right? They go by what the church has, has taught them. And the church is a system. And the church is a system of works for the person to do in order to gain. And the reason you're, I think it was Debbie who said, you know, you're unsure, uncertain. Yeah, the reason you're uncertain is because how do you ever know if you've done enough? And in fact, when most people die, they haven't done enough. That's why they go to purgatory. A third place between the two places that the Bible talks about, heaven and hell. The Bible doesn't talk about this third place, purgatory. Which also makes it difficult because you've got somebody who, who understands Bible, the word Bible, knows that that's a book, and it's their religious book, but they don't know what's in it. So you've got, you know, your work cut out for you to disentangle these false understandings about these really important concepts. So even though you're way up at the top there, you still have to now kind of re-engineer this in order to create proper understanding. Yes. No, no. And, and, and the, the thing is, and so the question was, for those of you that are watching on video, that uh, the question was, isn't purgatory in the Roman Catholic Bible? No. And it doesn't have to be in Roman Catholicism. This is a key thing that people need to understand. It doesn't have to be in the Bible. In order to be believed, it doesn't have to be in the Bible. Because in Roman Catholicism, the lone authority, unlike what we believe, is not the Bible. The Bible is an authority. It is a authority. But it's only one of three. You have the Bible. You have the magisterium of the church. That's what they call it. This is those who hold official office, the pope, the cardinals, the magisterium. The pope uh, can decree Dogma, that's the term, dogma, authoritative teaching that must be believed. It's equivalent to Scripture. What the Pope dogmatically decrees is equivalent to Scripture. And it doesn't have to be in the Bible. I'll give you an ex give you example. So you got the Bible, you got the magisterium, and then you have church tradition with a capital T. I mean, they use a capital T for tradition. It's sacred tradition. So the, the church has always believed, for example, that Mary never uh, died. But if you look in the Bible, there's nothing about Mary's death. If you look in the Bible, there's nothing about Mary's early life. She just shows up. You know, the angel shows up to her. And she's a young lady. But prior to that, we know nothing about her. But in Roman Catholicism, you know all kinds of things about her. You know that she was conceived without the stain of original sin. And it's called the Immaculate Conception. 
The Immaculate Conception is not the conception of Jesus by Mary. Now, they do believe in the miraculous, the virgin conception of Jesus, like we do. But they have another miraculous conception of Jesus by her mother. So then you go, I, I never read that. Is it in the Roman Catholic Bible? No, it turns out. It's not. The Roman Catholic Bible starts exactly where ours does in the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew. The birth of Jesus, same, same way. Mary just is there. But the church has always has taught this for centuries. And in the meantime, the Pope, 1854, 1854, the Pope decreed the Immaculate Conception to be dogma that must be believed. 1950, 1950 decreed that Mary, the assumption of Mary, that's that she was assumed bodily into heaven, 1950. Dogma, okay? So no, it's not. And, and the key point is it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be in the Bible. Now, most Roman Catholics that I've encountered, they don't know the Bible, but they kind of think, you know, I'm glad there's some guys who know that stuff. And they kind of know the deal. And so it's in there somewhere. It's you know, kind of the ragu Bible. You guys remember that old ragu spaghetti commercial? It's in there. <laughs> Where's the oregano? It's in there. It's in there. You know. So they just figure it's in there somewhere. And I, when I encounter a Roman Catholic friend, if I've got a, a few minutes, I say, uh, "Hey, let me ask you what the Immaculate Conception is." And I've asked that question to well over a hundred Roman Catholics. Only one has gotten it right. They, they think for a second, they go, well, it's Jesus, you know, Jesus' conception. I go, well, Jesus was miraculously conceived. You believe that, we believe that. Yeah, Bible teaches that. The Immaculate Conception is a different holy day of obligation for you. And then they start thinking, they go, yeah, you know what, you're right. Wait, I go, this is Mary's conception by her mother. And who's her mother? Of course, we have no earthly idea. But the Roman Catholic Church says it's St. Anne. There's someone named St. Anne who's not in the Roman Catholic Bible, who's not in our Bible. So when you say that, what I found is now the person's foundations are shaken a little bit because they've always assumed it's in there. They've always assumed that somebody read the book. And what it is they're passing on to me is somewhere in the book. But it's not. And it's not for some really big stuff. And you have to believe in the Immaculate Conception of Mary and the bodily assumption of Mary as much as you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, if you're Roman Catholic, on pain of eternal damnation. You must believe that. So it's good to know what the person you're talking to, if you have some idea what they believe in. Those sheets will give you some of that. Okay? All right. So bottom of page 21 you know, if you're dealing with a Roman Catholic, on the one hand, you're way up the scale in reaping. But as I said, you got the vocabulary and dictionary issue. And so in some ways, you have to also go back to the beginning. Because to believe that you can go to heaven by your own works means you don't understand how holy God is. You have a misconception about God. God is too holy to accept your stuff, my stuff. I mean, this is why, this is why God had to come to earth. If, if God could, think about it. If God could accept your stuff, then why not just give you a list, tell you to keep it, keep trying, when you die, we'll create a third place for you to go to, for you to keep trying, and you know maybe you'll get it eventually. And if you don't do something to disqualify you from keeping trying, if you get disqualified from trying, you go to hell. Okay, but outside, I mean, that's one way God could do it, but there isn't any way you're going to get that done as a sinful person before a holy God. So you have a mistaken notion about the holiness of God from the very beginning. And you have a mistaken notion about humanity, then. The next one. 
like that we're somehow going to be able to do this? How are we going to pull this off? We can't pull this off. That's why God had to come, right? Sin, now you've got to come up with categories of sin. Mortal sin and venial sin. That's a whole thing. So you've got to come up with categories of sin. and So there's a lot of confusion. You kind of have to go to the back. And I'm not just trying to pick on Roman Catholics. Uh, I grew up Pentecostal. My Pentecostal church believed you could lose your salvation, that you could be a child of God at one point, but that you could do something later in the future to forfeit that. That's what I grew up with. And I grew up terrified. Grew up terrified as a teenager, thinking that I may have lost my salvation. I mean, you guys remember being a teenager? You remember how many things you did wrong? And I was trying to walk the straight and narrow, and I just couldn't quite manage it. And so I was afraid to sleep at night. And my dad had passed away when I was 11. My dad was a hellfire and damnation Pentecostal preacher. So that stayed with me, too. And then his brother, my uncle, took over the church, and he carried on the family tradition, hellfire, damnation. And we would be at church on Sunday nights, sometimes till 10 o'clock at night, if the spirit was moving, and scared to death. And have I, did I have salvation? If I did, did I lose it? And then my poor mom, I get up in the middle of the night and I come and talk to her about it. And she's trying to counsel me, but from her belief system, she couldn't do it. She couldn't give me assurance, right? So it's not just Roman Catholicism. Anybody who believes that there's something that you've got to do to attain it or keep it, then they have a misunderstanding about the holiness of God, a misunderstanding about humanity and our abilities, about sin, one last example here, but when I finally left my Pentecostal church at age 19, I went to my pastor, no longer my, my uncle. My uncle wasn't pastoring anymore, but another guy. And I went to tell him, I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to be a Baptist. <laughs> and he's got, you know, wide-eyed. And, uh, I said, you know, I, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. If you're a child of God, I've studied, you're a child of God forever for eternity. And I said, if you could lose it, we've all lost it. I said, we all sin regularly. And he said, you guys just got to take my word for this. This is the absolute truth. He said, I'm quoting, I will never forget. I have not sinned a willful sin in 35 years. Now, what has he done with the concept of sin? He's redefined it. See, we're using the same dictionary, or excuse me, vocabulary, but not the same dictionary. He's redefined sin. He hasn't killed anybody. He hasn't broken, you know, at least one half of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, um, having no gods before me in the way the Bible des describes idolatry, we've all violated that in the way we've idolatrously followed whatever it is we love. And Jesus says, you know, on these two commands hang all the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's done that? But here he's redefined sin. So that's, that's what people do. Now, here's the, that's sad, that's, that's difficult, but here's the good news. I mean, that's what gospel is. The good news is, guys, gals, see, we get to go and try to help people disentangle that so we're going to go forth from this class you know with some understanding consulting our little paper here asking god to open doors and then to fill in those those gaps for them all right page 22 so worldview noise and and false beliefs Look at this in the middle of the page there where it says this. It's a great statement. The greatest worldview noise problem is not what people do not know, but the untrue things they believe they know. <laughs> so there are a lot of untrue things that people think that they have down. So on a scale of zero, the lowest, to 10, the highest, how completely do they understand each of these, these gospel concepts? And 
You know, I've said God, man, sin, are using Roman Catholicism as our paradigm. They don't have that. Death, they've got, you know, they've got death. You know, uh, Christ, you know, we, there's a lot of talk about Christ. There's a lot of talk about Christ's sacrifice and so on. But the cross, so Christ, I'll give you, I'll give you a Christ. The cross, what did the cross accomplish? Did the cross accomplish, as the book of Hebrews says, that Christ died once for all? Didn't do that, did it? Because you keep going every week to Mass, and Mass is a re-crucifixion of Jesus every time it's done. So we don't understand what was accomplished on the cross. We don't understand faith. What does faith do? Faith means belief. Have I drilled that in well? Faith and belief, same thing, same word. So what does believing, trusting in Jesus do? What does it do? Well, the Bible, Bible says it is through faith that we are rescued. It is by grace through faith that you have been saved, rescued, delivered. So that's what, it, that's what it accomplishes. But for Roman Catholicism, it's this uncertainty, you know? Have I believed enough? And for a lot of people, not just Roman Catholics, so a lot, a ton of, of misunderstanding. And I would just add one last thing in our final two minutes. You got the eight concepts here. If you have uh, joined our church as a member, you filled out our one-page membership application. I had a meeting with you, and I said, hey, you did a good job filling out this one-page application. And uh, the first two questions are, who do you believe Jesus is, and what has Jesus done for us? Those two. And for those of you that haven't done this, then this is a clue for how to fill out those first two questions, okay? Yeah. So uh, who do you believe Jesus is? Most people say he's the Son of God. That's, that's right. That's good. Uh, and then I say, but let's just make sure we understand that Son of God means God, fully God. God the Son. Okay, you good with that? Because the final question on the one page down at the bottom says, does Jesus have full authority over your life? And the right answer to that is yes. The reason that's the right answer is because he's God. He has full authority. But then the second question is, what do you believe Jesus has done for us? And most people say he died on the cross for our sins. Good answer. But I then beat on this. I say, uh, Jesus not only died for us, he lived for us. And if Jesus had not lived for us, then his death could not pay for our sins. If the death was not preceded by a perfect life of righteousness, it would not have obtained our salvation. So it's because Jesus was perfect. And he's perfect in the dual sense that perfection means not one thing, two things. Perfection before God means, yes, you never do anything wrong. That's what most of us think, that it just means that. It means that. And Jesus never did anything wrong. But it also means you do everything right positively. And we don't often think of it that way. We sometimes think that if you just avoid doing the wrong stuff, but it's not enough to stand before God and go to His heaven just having avoided wrong things. You have to be, Jesus said this, this is a quote, Matthew 5, 48, quote, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So in order to stand before this holy God, you have got to have, I've got to have, the stuff I've done wrong paid for. Jesus did that on the cross. Paid for my sin, the things I've done wrong, past, present, and future things I will do wrong. But you've also got to have positive righteousness. Perfect. Where are you going to get that? You get that from the life of Jesus. So when I was 19 and in my bedroom... And after all the turmoil and all the counseling sessions in the middle of the night with my mom and all of that, I read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. When I did that, I go, ah, 
the light went on. I prayed to receive Christ as Savior, bowed before Him as Lord. And in that moment, what happened is what happens with everybody who comes to Him. Sins forgiven, righteousness from Christ. So that if I die tonight, I stand before Him clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Okay? So there's kind of a ninth thing here. There's the life of Christ. There's the death of Christ is the cross, but there is the, the life of Christ as, as well. And you get that when you trust and, and repent. All right, thanks. I went over three minutes. I will ask forgiveness. See ya.